1: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50 F-I-F-T-Y at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Adam Bisno about his book, Big Business and the Crisis of German Democracy, Liberalism and the Grand Hotels of Berlin, 1875 to 1933, which has come out this month, October 2023, with Cambridge University Press, and is also in open access. Welcome to the podcast, Adam, and thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Adam is a historian of modern Germany and lives in Washington, D.C., He completed his PhD in history at Johns Hopkins University. His dissertation won the Fritz Stan Dissertation Prize and the Friends of the German Historical Institute in 2018. So uh, before we get into our book today, um, which looks at the history of German liberalism through the industry of grand hotels in the capital city uh, and traces the relationship between business, politics, and social relations, Adam Bisnow is a historian of modern Germany and lives in Washington, D.C., and completed his Ph.D. in history at Johns Hopkins University. His dissertation won the Fritz Stern Dissertation Prize from the Friends of the German Historical Institute in 2018. Our book today, Big Business and the Crisis of German Democracy, looks at the history of German liberalism through the industry of grand hotels in the capital city, tracing the relationship between business, politics, and social relations. But before we explore the book a bit more and Adam's research, I'd first like to um, ask our guest, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, What brought you to the field of German history and perhaps to um, business and political history more generally?
1: What brought me to the field of German history? I took a German history class in college, but I must have been interested before that. And I I think if I were to go back, it would be a friend named Elizabeth, who's still the smartest person I know. And when we were in high school, she had already developed a a really precocious interest in fantasy, Eklund German and Austrian art of all things. And she lived near, uh, we both lived in the New York area, but she lived near the Neue Gallery in New York City. And she took me there. And I was so shocked by the design and art of the 1890s and early 20th century. And I I, I had this question in my head, what was going on in Central Europe that people were painting such crazy paintings, designing such crazy things, composing such wild music? Uh, And so I read, and maybe only very partially understood at that age, Karl Shorsky's Fantasieckle Vienna book. And so when I got to college, I thought, I, I kind of want to learn this language and, and, and be able to read some of these texts in the original. So I, I took German and, and got really into it. And the rest, um, already regretting saying this, and the rest is history. Uh, I think not on purpose, but maybe um, fatefully nonetheless, uh, my dissertation advisor ended up being one of Karl Shorsky's students. So I think I stayed true to that line, even if I veered pretty far from uh, Viennese history. I I got quickly into German history, uh, especially the history of the Imperial period, the First World War and the Weimar period. Uh, And I decided in the end to pursue a PhD uh, going as far as I could go.
0: And on the subject of hotels, I also um, noticed that in your acknowledgments you'd mentioned that you had family who would run a hotel in in Arkansas. Is that part of what sparked the specific interest of your dissertation project?
1: No, but I think it inspired its direction in the end. The way I came upon hotels was, was not on purpose. I was at the Landesarchiv doing my year and eventually two years of dissertation research, and I'd gone there with a really different idea. I wanted to write a dissertation about men shopping in Berlin. When I went to find sources, though, I found that they were either hard to decipher or hard to find or totally incomplete. I was looking through police records, I was looking through magazines, and there was just no there there that I could find. But an archivist tipped me off to a trove of documents, a really big collection from Aschinger's, Aktiengesellschaft, Aschinger's Corporation. They owned a lot of fast food chains, but also wine merchants, restaurants, some dance halls, uh, and grand hotels in the city center. And I saw all these documents. I mean, they were a mess. Like, the, the archivists had done an excellent job of describing each of the folders, thank God. Otherwise, I think this would have been impossible. But, you know, they had to maintain the order, and the order was was really messed up. There'd be files with, like, 10 pages about a transaction that never happened, some letter to the Nazi authorities from 30 years later, uh, and a floor plan unlabeled, you know, from and, and completely undated. And each file kind of looked like that, just a mess. And so I started going through them, and I realized... There's there is a story here, if not about this corporation, which is too much, about these hotels and these grand hotels, these this correspondence, this evidence, these menus, all sorts of things kept cropping up, and they all looked so interesting and, and so weird, uh, and had a kind of reflected a kind of everyday life and an in, in, in everyday detail that uh was missing from the documents, say related to the fast food places. So I started collecting these hotel documents, having them copied, scanning the copies. Uh, and realized, you know, I, I think there's a whole story here about, about grand hotels. I just didn't know what it was. And that's where I think my background came into it. My mother's family had owned uh, a hotel in Little Rock for decades. Uh, they sold it though, before I was born. And I mean, I, I don't know that I could call it a grand hotel. There. the, The town didn't support anything as large as the Grand Hotel, but it was, if not the nicest, among the two nicest hotels in town. And I grew up with all of these stories of the hotel, both glamorous ones and less than glamorous ones, funny ones. So I already had a sense of the management's perspective and the owner's perspective and what you see and don't see from on high uh, and what kinds of stories get told and what kinds of stories are tellable. And I think that that, in a very at a very subconscious level um, allowed me to see that there was a story here that wasn't immediately obvious in the mess of documents.
0: So perhaps just to define what we mean by grand hotels, can you tell us a bit by by what makes a grand hotel grand and um, in the context of Berlin specifically, what were the hoteliers of of Berlin modeling their institutions on in the 19th century and into the 20th?
1: Yes, the definition of a grand hotel, of course, shift, sh- shifts over time and it's still shifting. So I try to be just period specific in in giving, a, a de- or I, give a, I try to give a definition that works for most periods. And what that would be is a hotel that is purpose-built, that delivers hospitality and gastronomy to the highest standards of the day, and that caters to a guest's every need if not 24 hours a day, then at most hours of the day. That gives me enough flexibility to say, well, a grand hotel doesn't have to have en suite bathrooms, for example, because they didn't until really the 20th century uh, for the most part. But they have to have the highest standard for the day we're talking about. Uh, In Berlin uh, and in European cities more generally, grand hotels were different from American grand hotels in that they were always smaller. The biggest hotel on the European continent was probably the Excelsior in Berlin that is before world war 2 and it as far as i can tell it never had more than 550 rooms us hotels were talking about rooms in the thousands really massive enterprises and those don't those don't happen in europe But nonetheless, they are hotels that are purpose-built in Europe that are serving guests to the highest possible standards of the day. The idea is that they would be able to reproduce or even improve upon the standard of service you might get in a really wealthy bourgeois household or even at a country estate or urban palace.
0: And you do describe these hotels very vividly and you've now mentioned sort of where your sources came from and and how you are able to bring them together to tell a story. How were you able to sort of fill the gaps to be able to illustrate what the daily life looked like in these hotels, what the different uh, social relations were, and the different conditions at every level?
1: For certain periods and for certain questions, I had to get pretty creative with sources, read some of them against the grain. So look at floor plans, for example, that were really that would have been published, let's say, in architectural digests of the day, in part as advertisements for the hotel and its greatness. And I would try to look beyond all of the details about the luxuries to see what evidence I could find of, say, ventilation systems, uh, so that I might be able to infer or, or say something about the experience, the atmosphere, the literal atmosphere of working in the cellar. Or I might start measuring ceiling heights as we go up the floors to try to understand how different guests of different statuses are accommodated in different ways. At other times, I mean, there were what I would call some narrative silences in this. There were decades where there just wasn't, there weren't enough sources in the archive. And then I supplemented those actually with U.S. newspapers. And the reason I used U.S. newspapers is not because I'm American, but because the, uh, American newspapers did something that the European newspapers didn't really do in any broad sense. They stationed reporters in grand hotels in Europe in order to report on American, members of American high society are coming and going at these grand hotels. And there was a huge market in the United States for reports like this. Uh, and I think it reflects in part uh, the existence the existence in the United States of an elite hotel dwelling population, which you never really see in, in large part in Europe so they're reporting let's say new york times it's mostly new york times and chicago tribune they had they they had reporters stationed at the adlon and other hotels at different times and they're reporting back on the comings and goings of these wealthy americans but i was again i'm reading those against the grain i'm less interested in fact i wasn't really interested in what rich americans were doing in the grand hotels i was interested in kind of the asides where the reporter would mention what he ate or in later periods during world war one labor conflicts um or uh, crimes that happened. And then I could chase those kinds of details in German sources uh, to try to get confirmation. Uh, So that was another way I got around some of the narrative silences in the archive.
0: That is indeed very creative. Um, So that also then brings me to uh, one of the themes in the second chapter, which is on the latent tensions that were present in Berlin hotels and in Berlin itself. So tensions among classes, between guests and staff, but also between ideas between cosmopolitanism and nationalism. Can you tell us a bit more about how these frictions uh, played out and how they were on display in the world of grand hotels?
1: Before World War I, grand hotels developed as this transnational phenomenon, and ideally they wouldn't look too different from country to country. Uh, this makes sense because they're having to accommodate guests from all over the place. So they want a, a standard level of service as best they can achieve it. You end up with grand hotels designed, at least their interiors, mostly in the French idiom and, and largely actually their exteriors in the French, in the front, the second empire, French idiom. And that lasts into the 20th century. So it makes these buildings kind of recognizable a grand hotel in Vienna and Berlin and Paris, um, even in New York is not going to look, they're not going to look totally different from each other. They have to be recognizable, but, in certain countries at certain times there was of course pressure to uh, have these hotels have a distinctive national flair and that is particularly the case or particularly true in berlin the design of the city had been politicized the design of its buildings by 1900 it meant something if you chose say uh an italian renaissance style versus a kind of german what i'm calling like a german alpine composite baroque style or French Second Empire style. Uh, There was discussion in the architectural journals, but also in the regular daily press over the appropriateness of certain foreign architectural forms to Berlin's cityscape. And I I see this really as as one of the many ways that Berliners tried to deal with the massive transformation that their city and polity were undergoing uh, as the German Empire formed and then assumed uh, an increasingly prominent and troubling for many place on the world stage. So these hotels are not existing in a kind of political vacuum. They are accommodating foreigners in an empire that, especially after 1900, is increasingly hostile to foreigners, or at least it's being presented that way in the foreign press. So they need guests to be comfortable. They don't want guests necessarily to think about the latest international relations and um, a diplomatic crisis that didn't but almost did result in a world war, for example. They don't want that on the eve of World War One. Nonetheless, they do need to bow to pressure from architectural critics, from nationalists, from feuilleton writers in, in, in Berlin and elsewhere in Germany. Um, they need to bow to pressure not to make these hotels too French, uh, it's, and it's especially the French idiom that people get upset about. So they pepper the interior design with certain German elements. And some of those are are elements of imperial greatness. You see busts of Wilhelm II uh, in several places in the Adlon. Um, There are uh, statues of Wilhelm I at the Kaiserhof, uh, which Placated some Germans, to be sure, but also gave foreigners pause, I imagine, as they saw in a grand hotel where it didn't really belong, these these signs of imperial greatness, uh, and um, at least from some perspectives, uh, avarice. Other ways that... National traditions work their way into berlin's grand hotels are uh, were were less controversial. These were when let's say at the some Heidelberger beer hall at the central hotel they decided to theme each room uh, after a different uh, regional dec- after after a different region in germany um and I think this was largely to placate business travelers who are coming, say from Munich or Stuttgart and who are uneasy about the Imperial bombast on display in Berlin and the very Prussianness uh, of, or the the Prussian hegemony um, that characterized the German empire. And so they're sort of put at ease by actual sort of regional national displays um, in, 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 something like a hotel beer hall. These, There were also occasionally conflicts among guests. Um, There were guests who flaunted their national differences. And I think flaunted is the right word. And I'm going to use it, of course, for Americans who started holding election parties at grand hotels. Uh, Most of those, as far as I can tell, happened at the Adlon. uh, And they're cheering late into the night. They're talking about how great their democracy is. They're putting on display their kind of um, their, uh, their... Political the the difference in their political culture from the German political culture uh, that Germans also commented on. So they were these places where differences and tensions e- existed and and played out. But everything remarkably was held, I would say, in equipoise until World War One, when it all falls apart. But there the tensions were present beforehand. Uh, they just explode uh, at, at the at the at the moment that uh, war breaks out.
0: And on the subject of of the war. Of course, World War One greatly affected the hotel industry, but it didn't eliminate it. It didn't um, mean that the hotels were, were out of business. How did the war ultimately affect um, the Berlin uh, Grand Hotel scene in the earlier years and then in the later ones?
1: The beginning of the war in Grand Hotels was violent. And this is the first instance of violence that I see of, of sort of... Outright violence I see, or political violence I see in grand hotels. And the remarkable thing, of course, not that they could know this at the time, is that it doesn't really stop. It goes; it continues down to the Nazi period. But they think this is an the hoteliers think this is an aberration, and it starts with a spy fever um, in the first week of August, as as particularly as the Russians mobilized. Um, the papers started writing about the existence of spies throughout Germany and especially in Berlin and in Berlin's Grand Hotels. And this this roving population of cosmopolitans and Grand Hotels was not to be trusted and was now a liabil- a security liability. Uh, there were also stories of, of couriers, money carriers using Grand Hotels to kind of ferret money from Russia to France, sorry, from France to Russia and, um, And so hotels became these kind of nodes in um, a a kind of anxiety complex about a two-front war. And the result was that mobs attacked grand hotels. Uh, They roughed up guests. They beat up reporters. Uh, In certain cases, at the Adlon, for example, hotels, but also at the Kaiserhof and the Fürstenhof, staff, like maids, apprehended or... uh, um, the suspected spies themselves i don't have any evidence that any of these people were spies every time i looked into it it was somebody who was totally innocent um, of spying at least as as far as we know it really was kind of a, a witch hunt so the grand hotels are suddenly vulnerable to these outside forces that are really that are a bad for business but also really uh, upsetting to the people involved then come the shortages, labor shortages, as more and more men are called up to the front and then boys are called up to the front, uh, shortages of materials, of goods, of foodstuffs. They no longer have access to exotic foods, for example. Some of the finest uh, ingredients were sourced through the British Embassy, for example, for ingredients that would have gone into meals at the Adlon nearby. That's, of course, no longer available once war breaks out. So. The food gets duller, life gets duller, eventually the coal supply becomes insecure, lights grow dimmer, um, signs outside are no longer illuminated. And uh, as rationing ratchets up, uh, the staff ends up having to enforce all of these rules. And you have a new set of conflicts that hadn't existed before, where the staff was supposed to convey to guests the bounty of all of, of, of their riches. Uh, now the staff is standing between guests and th- what they want, and I, of course, started this before the COVID-19 pandemic, but it was so familiar, uh, or it became so familiar to me even, this kind of upended relationship between service workers and customers, where suddenly you're the customer and there are rules you need to follow, and if you don't follow them, it is up to the staff, very unfortunately for them, to enforce the rules, and now we have a new set of conflicts that are informed by, by class, by emergency, by scarcity. Um, What kept the Grand Hotels afloat in this period was actually a, a decrease in the supply of rooms. The Government started buying up buildings to house the war corporations. These were the organizations established to source, for example, to source things like potatoes or clothing, and they needed office space. The war had to be administered from somewhere. And Grand Hotels, because most of them were near the gov- other gov- near the government offices, uh, were really attractive to the government. So they started buying up Grand Hotels and converting them into office buildings. And that reduced the supply to the extent that for the duration of the war, Berlin's Grand Hotels were at full occupancy. Nonetheless, the owners started making some serious mistakes. They deferred maintenance even when they could afford it. Uh, They, um, were lackadaisical with their books, and they ended the war actually in a pretty terrible financial situation, even though they had enjoyed full occupancy throughout. They were really expecting a kind of peacetime boom that, of course, as we know, didn't happen for the Germans because they lost the war, but it really didn't happen for anyone, Uh, you know, recession almost everywhere, visited almost everywhere in the wake of World War One. So they end the war really weak, but they don't actually know it. (laughs)
0: So, what do you think made hotels such a site of violence and explosive behavior? Is it the sort of itinerant nature of a hotel? Um, what I think, do you think I, it is?
1: I think that's part of it. That they're really the populations are really unstable. So that that the guests are itinerant, but also the staff is itinerant, means that it's a building of strangers, and it, that's by design. Like. The staff are supposed to seem interchangeable. You're supposed to be able to ask a member of staff, whoever it is, for whatever you want and not really care so much about who it is or what her name is. Um, and a guest is a guest is a guest is a guest. They're interchangeable. The rooms all look fairly the same. So I think uh, it's, a, it's a place where, where people are unknown and can hide things. And that became a huge topic of plays of the period, Um, novels in the Weimar era, especially Vicky Baum's mention of hotel is all about people pretending to be people they're not. So already, I think hotel populations are a bit suspect because of their foreignness and because of a lack of uh, perception of individuality among guests and staff. So that's already kind of maybe a natural or an inbuilt um, vulnerability. But I tried to go a bit further than that in this book. I see these grand hotels actually as crucibles of social conflict. Whatever social conflict existed outside the hotel gets distilled in the hotel. Let's say that labor relations in general across Germany are pretty poor. Those conflicts are going to be concentrated under a grand hotels roof. Staff in this period tended to live in the grand hotel, either under the eaves or under the ground in the cellar. Um, They're living alongside the richest people in the country. They're living alongs they're living alongside people they work for who are members of the commercial bourgeoisie, but also the the kind of white-collar middle class. Uh, and so any conflict that exists among these classes and groupings gets 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 distilled and heated up in the Grand Hotel. So I think it's an environment that becomes particularly explosive because people can't leave. Like if you're a worker and you have a conflict at the factory and it's developing, you at least get to go home in the evening and have a different community um, or a different space. This that's not available to these to, to hotel workers, hotel guests and hotel um, and and, and, to an, and to hotel owners or managers who often live on site or seller managers or restaurant managers. I think that everybody's living together and having to share space um, makes, these con- makes the conflicts more likely to happen on a daily basis. And on top of that, they're under a huge amount of pressure. They have to cater to the needs of an elite traveling public, uh, and they have to do it at a profit, which proved really difficult. I don't see evidence for the Grand Hotels ever having been... Uh, terribly successful, profits are really not forthcoming. Uh, There are only a few years where I can see that anybody's really making very much money at all. Uh, For the most part, they quickly have to reinvest any profit they would have had into updating the plant because hotels need to be modern. And as the cost of labor rises, uh, but the cost of rooms doesn't necessarily keep pace, the availability of profits evaporates. So they're also just under a lot of pressure. There's a lot of stress from the top that comes down to the staff, pressure to work harder, faster, better, smarter, even as real wages decline. And that produces another set of conflicts that make hotels, I think, that made hotels really, really unstable institutions.
0: So, in a way, it's a sort of microcosm of existing social relations and this pressure cooker of a space. Um, and this sort of gets to the the core of of the book, which is talking about how how this how the hotel um, reflects the the increasing failures or move away from democracy in Germany. So maybe we can move to the since we were talking about explosive violence in the hotels, the the violence of the November 1918 and and then into 1919 revolutions, um, and then how the tumult of the interwar years continued to play out in the business of grand hotels.
1: Yes. So the war ends uh, in violence in Germany. People have called it a restive peace or even a violent peace. Uh, And that is certainly an apt description for the experience of doing air quotes peace uh, in November, 1918 in Berlin. And the violence came to grand hotels right away, more or less. Um, There were attacks on guests. There were attacks on staff. uh, And there were also huge street demonstrations that sometimes spilled over into violence. And at times that violence came into the lobbies, the Adlon, for example, that happens. and so hoteliers are really, they're frightened, but they're also extremely disappointed. The peace that they were hoping for, uh, the salvation they expected is is not here. In fact, it's a fresh hell that is worse than the war experience. Uh, in early 1919, the situation worsens again. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht are murdered Uh Essentially, at the Eden Hotel, Karl Liebknecht he's he's brought there. Uh, the Eden Hotel was the headquarters for um, the army units in charge of subduing uh, revolution in Berlin, uh, and they found Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg who had been leading a, a far left revolution against uh, the government, and they brought them to the Grand uh, to, to to the Eden Hotel, and question them a little bit there. Karl Liebknecht was was taken through the lobby, beaten, and then uh, taken elsewhere and and dispatched, shot at point blank blank range. Rosa Luxemburg uh, was even less lucky, uh, was taken down through the lobby, was much more savagely beaten, probably Probably beaten to death um, in near in or near the port cochere of the hotel, although she'd already been bloodied in the lobby uh, and then uh, shot at point blank range in the car and tipped over a railing in the Lanfair Canal nearby. And the hotel, that hotel, never really. As horrible as this is, I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of the management. They never really recover. Uh, The the hotel's reputation never really recovers. Their publicity materials in the 20s actually start to claim that the hotel hadn't even existed before 1920, which is wild. Um, The Kaiserhof sustains more direct damage. It became a kind of impromptu headquarters in the eastern part of the city for counter-revolutionary forces who sacked the hotel, uh, destroyed everything they put their hands on, they swung from chandeliers which fell from the ceiling, they clogged toilets and bidets, they um, flooded entire floors, they stole all of the wine, or sorry, they drank all of the wine, they stole all of the silver, anything valuable not nailed down. And the Kaiserhof, which had been Berlin's Berlin's first grand hotel, never really recovers from that either. It neither recovers from the, the 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 hit to its reputation, nor does it recover financially. Nor does the building really recover. It's never restored quite to its earlier splendor. And that case is instructive, I think, for how or it foreshadows um, Grand Hoteliers' increasingly restive relationship to this new republic. With this new republic, they. You would think that the Republic would compensate the hotel owners for this damage because it was the Republic's forces who had done it. And the Republic indeed agreed to do, the government indeed agreed to do that. But because, uh, well, we shouldn't say because, but at the time, um, inflation was mounting in Germany. We're not yet in the period of hyperinflation, but it is still very, very high inflation. By the time the payment finally comes through, though, we are in the hyperinflationary period. And by my calculations, what they receive is not enough even to repaint Uh, Of course, they've already done the work. They're hoping to get compensated, uh, but they never really get it. So, grand hoteliers, for that reason and many, many other reasons, although they had approached the Republic with some degree of optimism at the beginning, are disappointed again and again and eventually enraged by what they see as its unfair, anti business practices. Um, I'll say one more thing about that. What's odd about these hoteliers is that before the war, they're liberal. They're classically liberal, many of them slightly conservative, national liberal, but they believe in the free movement of goods and people. They need it in order for their businesses to thrive. They they see their hotels as liberal institutions, as places where if people just follow the rules, they can enjoy the maximum level of freedom. Their hoteliers are against um, regulations. They're against barriers to travel. They're against barriers to entry for the most part. And yet they, they preside over the central irony of liberalism, which I think is, is distilled in the Grand Hotel form, that in order to have all of this kind of freedom of movement and association that Grand Hotels are famous for and that they needed, they of course had to keep a majority of the people in the building um, under thrall, underground or in the attics, toiling uh, over cauldrons, polishing silver in totally toxic environments, completely trapped uh, as workers, as, as wage slaves toiling away so that a very few upstairs could have this experience of glittering of, 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 of and pleasant sociability. And that's something I tried not to lose sight of because that kind of tension or irony of liberalism, that liberalism is expensive, that in order for some people to be free, others must work for wages, that... Irony becomes insupportable in the interwar period as the labor movement really uh, increases its power and as the government starts to give it concessions. Uh, it's no longer easy and indeed it's no longer possible to keep workers in the kind of tight thrall that owners had kept them in in the pre war period. Indeed, and, and sorry. Yeah. Continue. And of course, the owners blame the government uh, and its policies for this deterioration of labor relations. They don't see and why would they? I'm not sure I would have seen it either, but they don't see actually that the business model was at fault. Not only had it failed to to give them reliable profits, but it also had failed to last them through a crisis.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to, to note that in, in um, the latter half of the book, you do discuss sort of some of the explosive responses to the conditions of labor, but you also talk some about the attempts to to keep the lights on, uh, so to speak, of the of the management. What were some of the Attempts that the uh, management made in uh, dealing with the economic tumult of the period, and then ultimately of hyperinflation as well.
1: Mm -hmm. They're they're flying by the seat of their pants. So they they have to grant workers the eight hour workday. They have to grant workers other concessions related to paid leave, and so they start raising prices, but they can't go too far because German the German consumer in general was uh, impoverished and those who weren't impoverished often identified as impoverished. So people aren't really willing to pay more. Um, so they realized that one way to get money is to charge foreigners a different price from, uh, Germans. And then they have to have a whole set of negotiations. They all need to agree to do that together. And that is one of the way, or one of the points at which the grand hotel owners who had been in these corporate boards of directors who have been in competition with each other, start to work together. They also realize that together they can start to set prices for raw materials. They can agree not to buy things at too high a price, say wheat or wine. Um, they can also set prices, decide, okay, nope, we all agree. Nobody's going to rent a room out for less than you know 300 marks a night. We're going we're to agree to that. What they do essentially is form a cartel. They, they embrace anti-competitive practices that they'd actually railed against um, in the pre-war period, but now they see them as useful or as necessary. So that's one way they do it kind of behind the scenes. And they start to petition the government together for certain um, changes. Usually they want to lower taxes, um, but it can be all sorts. Of, they, they petition the local government for a relaxation of the of the ordinances and laws around you know, dancing and parties and drinking uh, and opening hours and things like that. Uh, but the industry becomes less and less competitive. They also start to save money. They also start trying to rationalize. They import ideas from the United States, and a lot of them go to the United States to observe really efficient American grand hotels. They love E.M. Statler, for example, who was famous, maybe the world's most famous hotelier at the time, and had massive hotels in the United States. and And there'll be these breathless reports in hoteliers uh, in the hoteliers' kind of um, professional newspaper or. Um, a trade publication about you know all the oysters that are shucked, or all the um, all the guests that are accommodated in one night, uh, or all of the all of the refrigerators that have been built, refrigeration rooms in Baden, that this should be brought back to, to Germany. But of course, there wasn't the credit in Germany to do that. There just wasn't enough credit to, to borrow to be able to borrow the sums of money to modernize these hotels. So, the standard in Berlin, as a result of the economic dislocations of the interwar period, did drop. Uh, pretty early. And then there's the disaster of the hyperinflation, which I am emphasizing in this book a lot. I think it's actually when it comes to if if these Grand Hoteliers are representative, and I'm going to say they are, of, of, of business, of big business elites in Germany. And, and the reason I say they're representative is actually they weren't, I call them grand hoteliers, but really they were members of corporate boards of directors of corporations that owned hotels. And this wasn't their main gig. These were titans of industry and finance. They were also on the boards or themselves had founded massive German conglomerations. Osram, for example, producing light bulbs and filaments for light bulbs. Uh, and um, the head of the Deutsche Bank earlier on um, the head of Dresdner Bank. These, these, these are the men who are sitting on these corporate boards of directors. Uh, and so while they're kind of day-to-day, um, the day-to-day opinions they would have uh, expressed, or they did express uh, in those bigger jobs for those bigger organizations haven't really survived in the archives as far as I can tell. Their correspondence in the Aschinger collection uh, does survive. And so we can see what they're thinking. Um, and they... Uh, and they're increasingly, increasingly despairing, even though they're liberals, almost all of them are liberals. They're seeing in this republic uh, a threat to their business. And they, they won't ever look back or they never look back at the business model and try to examine its weaknesses. Instead, they start increasingly to rail against the republic. Once the hyperinflation hits and the currency collapses uh, and the Grand Hotels suffer enormously, they never really forgive the republic. From 24 to 28, business is pretty good for them, but they write these annual reports that are so dismal. They hide from their shareholders, even uh, some of the most of the brighter points of that period. Choosing instead to rail against the the government for its tax policy, for its labor policy, for all sorts of policies, they become convinced, and they try to convince others that the interests of business and the interests and and the and the uh, existence of democracy. Uh, Don't align that that the democracy, this democracy, if not all democracy is somehow bad for business and that some other solution needs to be presented. That means that in the Great Depression, which is an even bigger crisis than the hyperinflation for grand hoteliers, there's, there's no there are no words left, there's no pattern left, there's no tradition left of defending the liberalism that they had embraced in the pre-war period. They're now so opposed to this republic and so ready for other solutions that even those in the room who would be defending the republic against, say, the Nazis totally failed to do so.
0: And this tight spot that the boards of hotels were in, this sort of desperation, I think also colors the the moment that opens the book, not to bury the lead, but also the one that uh, brings us to the fifth chapter, which is that the Hotel Kaiserhof served as a sort of informal headquarters for Hitler, and you talk about how the uh, the owner, or the the head of that hotel, went to the director of the board of hotels and and asked that that Hitler would be be kicked out, but he wasn't. So, what were the what was the calculus that took place? And ultimately, we know generally what the fallout was, but um, you know, in this particular context, uh, why was that? Uh, acquiescence chosen.
1: This was the craziest thing I found in the archive. And if there was a moment, indeed there was a moment, this was the moment where I realized this is, this isn't just an article or a chapter. This is a whole book uh, or a whole dissertation first, and then, and later, and later a whole book. And it was this one document. It was a set of meeting minutes that you're referring to from a meeting that happened of the board of directors of one of the hotel corporations, um, on September 15th, 1932, at the Bristol Hotel in a meeting room there. And the chair of the board was a guy named William Meinhart. And a member of staff at the hotel, the manager comes to the board meeting, which is rare actually, and says, I have a request. I, I need you to kick out Hitler from the Kaiserhof, which you, the corporation own. I need you to authorize me to do this. He doesn't give his reasons, or those, don't make it into the minutes. But the respo- from the responses, you can kind of figure out what he some of what he said. Um, part of the problem was that Hitler probably wasn't paying his bill, uh, at least not in a timely fashion. Or his his staff wasn't paying his bill. He also um, he had rented a suite on the corner facing the Chancellery, which would obviously future in the fu- in future be in, in the near future be his office. <laughs> And they're hatching plans from there. There are comings and goings of, of, of fascists, many of them in uniforms, SA men, Sta- members of the steel helmets. And it's really upsetting guests, especially Jewish guests. And I should emphasize when I say guests, I don't just mean like people staying in the hotel. Half the hotel's revenue actually comes from gastronomies. There are lots of well-off Berliners, including well-off Jewish Berliners who eat regularly at the Kaiserhof. And this is also happening at a time of emergency in the business. We're at the height of the Great Depression. Prices are falling. Occupancies are shrinking. Profits have withered to below zero. This is is a totally losing operation. Um, So the board doesn't really see a future for their business, and they don't know what to do under these conditions. Uh, But they have this manager who's saying, please let me kick out Hitler. He's going to help our problem. Like This is why the Kaiserhof is doing much worse than the rest of the hotels. It's it's not because we're doing a bad job. It's because we have this... um, Monster on the premises. He doesn't say monster, but the other problem with Hitler, of course, is that he's not the right class for Grand Hotel society. If we speak as, as if we speak as snobs, or if they spoke as snobs, which they did, he's 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 not behaving properly. He's not dressing properly, uh, nor are his hangers-on for the most part. So they they want him out, and they want their Jewish custom back. Um, the Jews have stayed away, and so then there's this discussion among board members about what to do. Uh, of course, one or two of them are saying, yeah, let's let's kick him out. This isn't great, or at least they're suggesting that. But then the chair, William Meinhardt, he, he tables the discussion. He says, we're going to put this off till the end and finish it. And then at the end, instead of further discussion, as far as I can tell, he just decides. And his decision uh, was really shocking to me as I'm reading this document for the first time. And it was that if we were to kick out Hitler and his goons, it doesn't say goons, but if we were to kick out Hitler Hitler and his men, we would be favoring one confession over another, that is Gentiles over Jews. And we'd be favoring one political um, party over the others by sort of penalizing um, the Nazis. And so therefore the Nazis can stay. And this is a really liberal argument meaning it, it comes from the philosophy of liberalism. And it makes sense because Meinhardt himself was a liberal. In fact, at this point, he's a left liberal. He's in the German Democratic Party. Uh, and yet in this position as the chair of the board, he's deciding to use his liberalism to justify accommodating the Nazis, the people who have made it their mission to destroy liberalism once and for all. And when I saw this, I thought, okay, what, who is this William Meinhardt? I didn't know at the time. It's like this, let me find him later. Let me see if he ends up being, maybe he's a Nazi. Maybe he ends up being a Nazi later. I don't know. And then, you know, when I looked up who he was, it turns out he is this Jewish titan of industry who himself is a liberal. He's a patron of avant-garde art. Uh, He's learned, he's an intellectual, and and yet he's he's making this, this shocking decision. And I realized that the rest of the book was going to become an effort to answer this question. How do we get to this point? I'm using Helmut Walser-Smith's term here to this this really horrible vanishing point where we have a a liberal Jewish German deciding to accommodate Hitler in what is his own house for the most part. Uh, And I found that so shocking. And The answer that I'm offering here is actually not that he was bad or didn't know what was going on, uh, but that he was... Terrified, first, and that has to be uh, an important point. The Nazis had already uh, attacked Jews throughout the city and attacked Jewish businesses by September fifteenth, nineteen thirty-two, in increasingly violent ways. Um, there was an atmosphere of fear throughout the capital that other historians, Peter Yelovich, especially, has, has written about. Have written about. Um, but I also want to emphasize the weakness of the business model, which itself stems from a weakness of liberalism. This fact, I think, that you can't really have freedom uh, and the free association of people and the enjoyment of that freedom without the naked economic domination of the majority. You still need this working class in your thrall, below stairs, in the attic. And because of that, and because of the business environment, you're never really going to turn a profit from that either. So if you find yourself running a grand hotel in 1932 and two and trying to do your fiduciary duty, trying to figure out how to make money or, or continue, or try to, try to figure out how to start making money for the shareholders, and then you're faced with a problem like this, I'm not sure there's any really good decision to make. I'm not sure what he could have done necessarily. But I did see this moment as emblematic of the inherent weaknesses of liberalism both to sustain itself, uh, but then also to defend itself against forces that tried to destroy it. The consequences were pretty swift for Meinhardt and the others. And that's also really sad in this case. They're running for their lives by the by the spring, summer of the following year. Hitler comes to power and this meeting happens in September 32. Hitler's in power in January 33. He All he has to do is cross the square from uh, the Kaiserhof to the... Um, to the chancellery. Uh, and then uh, the authorities set about arianizing German businesses. And that comes very early to the Grand Hotels, to the Grand Hotel across the street where Hitler had stayed throughout his, his campaigns. And Meinhardt, the other Jews on the board, and I sh- should say the board was actually narrowly majority Jewish, are, are running for their lives by, by summer. They've been threatened in various ways by the regime, and it's been, been made clear to them that their, quote unquote, safety cannot be guaranteed any longer. And they know what that means. And so they go and Meinhardt ends up uh, running Jewish relief. Efforts from uh, London in exile, and that's uh, the end of his story. And at the end of this, after this document uh, that I found in the archive and the file, there was another document that I reproduced in the book that shows the names of these board members who had this discussion about what to do with Hitler. And the document likely comes from May of the fa- of nineteen thirty three. So, so like eight months later, and it just had it's a type it's a typewritten list of the names and then there are marks next to everybody who's Jewish or could be, could possibly be Jewish. Uh, and then the next page, uh, uh is a, is a survey that had been sent from the authorities telling the hotel's owners to identify all Jews working on the premises and all Jews who were in any, any kind of position of authority or ownership. So the consequences are really swift. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sorry story at the end. And the book, to a large extent, although it goes all the way back to 1875, is an effort to understand how Meinhardt got into this position and made this kind of decision and how far back we might have to go in order to understand the weaknesses of the business model, of the civilization, of its ideology, liberalism, uh, that ultimately made it no match for the fascist onslaught.
0: It's an incredibly dark irony, the... Um, the um... Anecdote that you begin that with. Um, what was it that surprised you most about your research? Was this, this uh, situation with Hitler setting up in the Kaiserhof something that surprised you most? What were the, what were the things you didn't expect to take away from this project?
1: That was definitely the biggest surprise that there existed in Germany, there happened, there occurred in Germany, in Berlin, across from the chancellery, a discussion among Jews about what to do with Hitler, the physical, embodied, existing Hitler, what to do with him. um, And that the decision in the end was to do nothing. It was at first shocking, then sobering. And then as I thought more and felt more and did more and more research, it became more and more understandable that liberalism had not, and, and business experience and acumen had not equipped these men, uh, to deal with something like fascism. Uh, it made me appreciate the potency of the fascist threat, uh, that it is so good at infiltrating liberal institutions, not just the parliament, uh, which Thomas Mergel has, has has written a great book about how the Nazis kind of came into the parliament and then gummed up the works, um, but 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 an institution sort of as, as seemingly peripheral as a grand hotel that it's, that it's that it's that it's that it's probably happening everywhere. Then that these liberal institutions one by one just fail to recognize the danger uh, and act on it. Would it have been better had they kicked out Hitler? I feel professionally, I probably shouldn't answer that question, but personally, if I think about it, I. I I think, yes, it would have been better. What could have been worse? They might have complicated his rise to power. The backroom negotiations that happened to bring him to power, many of those happened not in back rooms, but in his suite at the Kaiserhof and suites near it. Um, They could have done something to complicate his rise to power. And they did know how how precisely he was using their hotel and why its location across from the chancellery was so important to him. And the results of having done nothing... Well, we can't be sure what would have happened had they kicked him out. We can't really know. He might still have come to power. But had they been able to complicate it, those hotels would still be here today. I, I do see as a direct consequence of his having come to power the Second World War, which initiated a process of destruction in Berlin, first aerial bombardment by largely the Brits, then the Americans join, and then there is the ground invasion by the Red Army, uh, and every last grand hotel is burned to the ground. I mean there are little bits of the Adlon and the esplanade that that remained as kind of shadow hostelries after but no it's all gone and the and the stability and perhaps profits that they hoped for in 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 a under a dicta- under the dictatorship that the Nazis promised to bring or at least that the nazis allies, conservative allies, and the Chancellor uh, promised to bring didn't actually produce good results for the grand hotels anyway and that In the 30s, before the war begins, the grand hotels continue to lose money. The Nazi government or the the Nazi regime was even more uh, controlling of of business than the Weimar regime had been, or the Weimar Republic had been. They're setting prices. If we look at the um, Olympics as an example, that was a point at which grand hoteliers expected to make a lot of money until shortly before the event. Goebbels actually tells them, here's what you can charge for a room, and it's like half of what it's supposed to be. Uh, so they lose money on the Olympics. They lose and they lose and they lose until the Second World War begins. And then the difficulty, many of the difficulties they'd faced in the First World War resurface. We don't get to see the consequences of those, of course, because then the bombs rain down uh, and the hotels burn and everything is over. That's that's the really dismal end of this. But I, what I also um, think this book does, that i think is important or at least is important to me as 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 an american growing up having grown up in a society where people think businessmen have all the answers and oh this university is having trouble if we could make the if we could get a ceo from from big business to be the president that would turn it around i think that the cautionary tale is that these men don 't know what 's best necessarily they don 't even know what 's good for them. They will make decisions that result in their own expulsion sometimes as is, as is the case with Meinhard. Um, They will make decisions that result in the literal destruction of their businesses uh, and that 's where I think this book might have a have a greater this theme might have a have a, have a, have a be more greatly applicable um, or more broadly applicable when we even as you know as Americans or as people in the 2020s almost 100 years later think about the relationship among big business politics the rightward drift we're seeing in politics anti-democratic movements um it's worth remembering that um perhaps nobody knows best but one of the last people uh, one of the last groups of people you should ask about what form the state should take and what the people's involvement should be in governing it. One of the last groups you should ask are probably the businessmen.
0: I definitely see a lot of resonance there in our in our present moment. I think that's an excellent place to to wrap up. Um, before I let you go, I want to ask, what are you working on next? Um, what's what's currently piquing
1: your interest? Well, I have two projects that are very, very early. In fact, one of them is just an idea. uh, And that is to shift gears considerably, though not much, and go to Hamburg. I've been interested for a while in um, the history of Anglophilia in Hamburg. And I'm thinking about writing a book that is more episodic. So we'll have a chapter dealing with sort of... um, intermarriage of senatorial families and British aristocracy, we might move forward then to um, consumer culture and exchange among department store owners and, of course, hoteliers um, in London and Hamburg to then the, the difficulty of being in a city that was that, w- that had become famous for its anglophilia or closeness to England now having to go to war with Great Britain uh in the First World War. Um, and then we might move forward to the Second World War where it repeats itself, but where resistance in Hamburg actually takes the form of an embrace of British culture. I'm talking about, you know, the swing kids, for example. This is this is a really partially baked idea, but I think there's um I think there's something interesting in there, so I'm, I'm, that might be a book, it might be a series of articles. But I've started research on that, and then the other project that's slightly farther along, uh, and I still don't know if the, this is a book or an article. But I, I have, I was the, I, I served as the historian of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office uh, for some years, and became interested in this uh, bizarre turn of events where after World War One, the U.S. government paid reparations to Germans, and they called it reparations, which is bizarre, uh, considering reparations. We everybody associated reparations with payments that would go from Germany to the Allies, not the other way around. The people they were paying were patent owners or erstwhile patent owners whose intellectual property, whose patents had been seized during the war as as property of as as, as German property, and then the government had actually um, caused these patents to be sold. And so they couldn't really be recovered. And so the germ these German patentees are actually compensated. And a question I have about this interesting though not necessarily terribly consequential uh, event or series of events is is whether it could tell us something about the endurance or the depth of commitment to capitalism and private property in that era that that um, in certain cases actually uh, outweighed. Um, some of the uh, heaviest foreign, heaviest international hostilities that, you know, we've seen in modernity after World War One. So that's, um, that's another idea. So those are the two things I'm, I'm spinning with now.
0: Fascinating. Well, I look forward to seeing um, either the books or the articles. And I want to thank you so much for taking uh, time out of your day today to speak with me. And I really enjoyed reading your book. And I hope that our listeners have a chance to
1: as well. I hope so too. Thank you. This has been really pleasant. Thank you for your excellent questions and the chance to talk to everybody about about my book.
0: Thank you so much.